The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Morning, everybody. Welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box. Uh, We are live this morning from London and Vienna, and here are your headlines. A day of high drama in Vienna as OPEC and its allies talk deep into the night, considering further protection cuts to balance the market. Uh, We've got some news on uh, Saudi Aramco, of course. Shares priced at the top end of the range. The oil giant raising a record $25.6 billion. It's the world's largest ever IPO, but that valuation fell short of the kingdom's $2 trillion target. President Trump strikes an upbeat tone on the state of trade talks, suggesting they're moving along well. But Beijing warns any interim deal must roll back existing tariffs. The House moves to file articles of impeachment against President Trump as Speaker Nancy Pelosi accuses him of abuse of power. Our democracy is what is at stake. The president leaves us no choice but to act because he is trying to corrupt once again the election for his own benefit. France readies for a second day of nationwide strikes as demonstrators across the country call on President Emmanuel Macron to back down from pension reforms. Welcome back, everybody. It was a drama worthy of Vienna's finest opera. In a day-long meeting, OPEC ministers clashed over supply cuts and over production. The Iranian and Angolan ministers reportedly stormed out and the press briefing was cancelled. Talks didn't wrap up until 11 local time. Well, let's get out to Hadley and Dan, who are still with us in Vienna. Um, And like a lot of people this morning, I feel we're still a bit in the dark as to whether a deal was actually achieved and what level of production cuts we're actually talking about. So hopefully you guys can help us out. Well, frankly, Jeff, I think everybody's still a little bit in the dark, including some of these ministers, because at the end of the day, we're talking uh, about a group of folks who just a couple of weeks ago, as you very well know, we're talking about um, can, the rollover. They weren't even talking about further cuts, were they? And of course, all of this surrounding the price of the Aramco IPO, not really terribly surprising, I guess, in the last several days that we've continued to hear um, more about further cuts. The Iraqi, of course, speaking to you um, a couple of days ago, essentially saying that cuts were necessary and lots of speculation, frankly, about who was actually behind that? Was that the Saudis? Was it the Iraqis themselves? I mean, there's been so much speculation and intrigue surrounding this meeting that it's difficult, I think, even now to get a handle on just where we are this morning. Absolutely. And just a couple of observations coming out of the meeting as well. What we saw going in was that a lot of ministers were quite reluctant to speak to the press. Perhaps that was a directive from above or maybe just a decision to sit on the sidelines because they too did not understand what was going to happen. Then at the same time, Jeff, you pointed out, we also saw the Angolans walking out of the meeting, the Iraqis also having some issues with the conversations inside the room. The gala dinner was cancelled last night. The crews also off. 
and at the same time that final press conference at the end of the day where they were meant to outline some of the deliberations from inside the room also called off. So that it means was crickets. It, yeah, absolutely. So that means that we're going to be in for another day of tough negotiations today. In terms of the overall deal, though, we're hearing that 500,000 barrels of oil is going to be coming off the market. That reduction set to take place until the end of the first quarter of 2020, giving these producers more time to essentially assess the oil market fundamentals and also accommodate for what is expected to be a weakening in demand in the first half of the year. Absolutely. And something, of course, that those Aramco IPO watchers will certainly be keeping a very, very close eye on, considering what we're seeing uh, over the last couple of days in particular with, uh, frankly, what I'm hearing from my folks in the kingdom, they consider a, a deep success, even though they didn't hit that $2 trillion valuation. Well, speaking of which, uh, stay right there. Let's just talk about the world's biggest IPO. Saudi Ramco has raised $25.6 billion, beating Alibaba's listing for the top spot. The oil giant priced its shares at 32 rials each, the top end of the range. It means Aramco is now more valuable than Apple with a $1.7 trillion market cap. So, Dan and Hadley, do you want to just talk us through size and why it matters in the oil industry when we have such a huge energy transition taking place? Well, Karen, I mean, this is going to be very fascinating to watch, frankly, not just from the perspective of the oil markets, but also, of course, as someone who watch very, watches very closely the developments geopolitically and, frankly, economically of the kingdom itself. I mean, the folks, as I say, that I've been speaking to seem pretty pleased, including some of the top, top officials inside the kingdom about where we are today. It's all, of course, going to be about where this trades next week when they decide uh, the data list. They're still wondering about that yeah. one. We're still wondering about that one. No surprise there, frankly, given the history of the kingdom. But at the same point, I think what's going to be really interesting to watch as well is... Uh, frankly, how traders decide to make the move on this one, because 1.7 is not half bad considering uh, how many fears there were about where we'd actually be today. Indeed. And it did come back quite significantly. The IPO is a fraction of its former self and how the market is going to take that in really remains to be seen. But by pricing at the top end of the range, this really also puts perhaps a bit of pressure on Saudi Aramco to perform on debut, whether or not the Tadawal has the interest and the liquidity um, to actually make this the impressive IPO that it's been touted to be remains to be seen. But in the context of just how significant the size and scale of this IPO is, we were looking at some numbers earlier. This is actually going to be bigger than the top 16 largest KSA IPOs combined. So even if uh, the uh, Aramco, uh, even if the Aramco uh, group decided to exercise the green shoe option as well, they could raise about 30 billion US dollars, which would also mean this would be the most significant IPO that the GCC has ever seen and the world has ever seen. So huge for the region, huge for the market. The biggest economy, and frankly, as we all know, that bleeds very much into the Gulf Arab countries surrounding it and also, of course, into the broader region. And remember, of course, that this is a company that's essentially now protected by the US government. Hadley, Dan, thank you very much for bringing us the latest around uh, the drama around OPEC and also the Aramco listing. But uh, highly significant, I think, for markets as they count down to year end and watch for a trade deal that may have some impact on the supply side, whether we on the demand side, whether we also have these supply cuts coming at a time when demand might be influenced by any trade outcome. Yeah, no, I think this is fascinating for anybody uh, that's interested in the energy markets this morning who owns shares of the uh, energy companies or is trading the oil at the moment. This is just downright confusing. You've got to figure out this morning exactly whether it is a 400 or a 500,000 uh, barrel cut at this point. So 
you've got that confusion. We're running into a day where we have the non-farm payrolls data. So we're looking, the market will be very sensitive to that economic data because we've had all these messages around a manufacturing slowdown. Is this just an inventory clear out or is this something more serious about a slower growth phase running into next year? Obviously, the oil story would appear to anticipate weaker growth going forward. So you could argue that OPEC plus is already anticipating that next year is going to be weaker. But on top of all of that, a lot of the analysts that I'm reading and the economists actually think we might start on the front foot with the US consumer early next year as they celebrate the fact they made it through 2019 and they look to re-engage with the housing market and consumption in the early part of next year. I like your point about anticipating what 2020 looks like at this stage because I thought the same point where you've had a, an agreement to effectively price out on oil and, and try and tweak supply numbers for the first quarter but not beyond because the last agreement we had from OPEC was a nine-month agreement so perhaps they thought they had more visibility about the weakness and demand for much longer at that point and as we get set up for 2020 we've got C-suite executives, CEOs trying to forecast what their year is going to look like next year. So February is meant to be the timetable when they start to come clean on how the year is going to transpire. But I think at this point, a lot of market participants are trying to say, well, if we get a trade deal, does that mean we have a year of two halves where the weakness carries on from this year into next year for a little bit? Then we start to see a change in animal spirits and a change in the demand story or not. We don't get a trade deal and some of the weakness we've had is going to require more central bank intervention. Therefore, you know, all bets are off. We, We might actually have a weaker 2020. So I think OPEC in that context and OPEC plus trying to forecast what supply should look like is quite a fascinating idea. Now the one thing I can say and I know um, that um, uh, Dan and Hadley will be very much on the same page about this and we'll see how this goes this morning. Uh, Everybody likes to talk in that OPEC grouping. So I do not believe we will make it much past the three hours of the program this morning without a minister somewhere, an oil minister somewhere, breaking cover and giving us a bit more clarity, hopefully, on what was essentially agreed once that meeting broke up at 11 o'clock. Well, you're right, they might be up early. They didn't party on tonight oh, well, on the Danube well, anymore, well, did we'll they? See. So I mean, it depends how good they felt about the deal that they signed, doesn't it? But Vienna <laughs> can be a bit of a party town at times, I know. I've got friends down in that part of the world. Um, while we're talking about deals and uh, the things that have been accomplished here, hats off to John Dacey over at Swiss Re the CFO. And John, if you're watching this morning, quick call. We can have a chat about this. Swiss Re uh, announcing this morning that they are agreeing to sell their reassure business to the Phoenix Group. And the reason I um, say the market will probably be um, happy with the numbers here is that the group says that the transaction will value reassure at £3.25 billion. Uh, Now, The reason that will be taken positively is back in July, uh, Swiss Re actually pulled expectations for an IPO of this reassure business. And the price target then was for a £3.3 billion IPO. Now, they cited uh, market conditions at the time, I think, and perhaps a reluctance to see that valuation achieved for for deciding not to go forward with that IPO of the Reassure uh, properties. Um, Now they've announced that the Phoenix Group will take this business. The uh, company says Swiss Re estimates the transaction will have a positive impact on its group Swiss solvency test ratio and economic profit and a negative impact on its US GAAP results 
in the fourth quarter of 2019. Uh, they will receive a cash payment of £1.2 billion. Pounds. Uh, shares in Phoenix representing a 13 to 17% stake and be entitled to a seat on its board of directors here. Uh, reassure minority shareholder uh, MS and AD Insurance Group Holdings will receive shares in Phoenix representing an 11 to 15% stake. Um, over the last uh, 18 months or so, of course, We've held uh, the CFO's feet to the fire a little bit on this story, saying, when is this, is this business ultimately going to be spun out of Swiss Re? Because it did look as though there would be decent economic benefit for, for shareholders from this. Well, the cash is partially there. We'll just have to see how the shareholders feel this morning about having the stake in the Phoenix business. We've had a window that's been open for some asset sales at the end of this year. There's been a little bit more optimism out that if you look at the share price performance of Swiss Re this year, it hasn't exactly gone up in a straight line, but it's been a decent performer, 17%. So if there's any movement on the back of uh, this transaction, then that's a, a handsome reward for, for shareholders, isn't it? Yeah, and, and just a parting shot. I mean, we are still in a world of negative interest rates which we know for the insurance sector is challenging because it brings lots of competitors into the market with capital for special situations reinsurance and it also means it's more difficult for them to take to make a decent return on their portfolios we're going to take a break uh has it come that quickly uh we will take the break we'll be back in just a moment another twist in the ongoing trade saga between the u.s and china uh brace yourself for the latest details on that story we'll be right back If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out The Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. A quick look at the market action stateside. Percentage gains on the charts and not much of it, uh, but in the green. And U.S. President uh, Donald Trump again talking about trade and a deal with China, saying talks with China were moving right along. So enough so that the market uh, again caught a little bit of a bid in session yesterday. Coming up to today's session, jobs report is all about the data. Just what uh, sign of health are we going to see from the labor market today is the big ticket item for investors. And barring any shock surprise, any particular weakness, this may not be hugely market moving today. Investors might just take this one in their stride. So uh, we're still watching out for it, though, uh, ahead of a, a Fed meeting later on, too. Uh, so what investors are watching very closely on the major indices, second pause session in a row for the Dow and S&P. But on pace for the Dow, it's worst trading week since August. So despite a little bit of green on the board, it has been a fairly negative trading a window for stocks. So Apple, though, one of the better supported stocks in the market session yesterday, based on expectations around the holiday period and just how many demand not just the iPhone, but some of the other wearables that Apple will sell. The Asian markets today, uh, this is how it's shaping up uh, ahead of the payrolls report. You can see it's a decent day, modestly high for many of the main markets. Australia 
and Japan uh, gains of uh, about a quarter to a third of a percent. A little bit more on the Hong Kong market, uh, rallying 210 points or eight tenths of a percent. The disappointing one really has been the Chinese market on the flat line today and just shy of 2,900 points. And let's just get to the opening calls. Uh, patches of weakness too for European markets yesterday. We reversed on the stock ship 600. Some of the bigger falls were again concentrated around the FTSE down seven tenths of a percent of the strength in pound around perceived fortunes uh, with the UK election that it may be a definitive outcome this time for the Tories with the majority. That's pushed sterling up and it's provided a real barrier for the FTSE at this point. In session yesterday, we did see a mild reversal for some of the other main markets, a fraction weaker for the French market and done a little bit more than that for the DAX, done six tenths of a percent. Uh, but this morning, you can see green. We're looking to bounce. Karen, thank you. Uh, so let's have a chat about this uh, China trade deal story then. Is it potentially darkest before dawn, as they say? Because we have over recent days been concerned that maybe we are on the back burner until early next year. And yet, even as I say that, the trade data will have been an encouraging read for some in the United States. The uh, trade deficit fell to its deepest level in almost one and a half years. And there was ob ob obvious uh, indications in it that the deficit with China dropped. Uh, it dropped 1.1% to just over $31 billion here. And as we've seen the mood music over the last 24 hours, President Trump is saying we're moving along very well in the talks. And we've also seen in the Wall Street Journal Chinese officials continuing to argue that a trade deal remains on track. And here we are, just within the last few moments, uh, we've had from Xinhua, the official Chinese news agency, news that China will implement tariff, tariff waivers for some purchases of soybeans and pork from the United States. Now, that seems to be extending a branch to the United States and the Commerce Secretary over the negotiations. Let's see if we can uh, bring you up to date on what actually is happening here. Eunice is with us out of Beijing. So Eunice, within the last few moments, as if they anticipated our conversation with you, we've had these comments from Xinhua, which would suggest that maybe President Trump is right, that progress is being made. Well, I think that your read is exactly correct, that um, that China appears to be offering an olive branch to uh, the U.S. to the, the Trump administration over the Chinese purchases of agricultural products, uh, because um, the just as you said just a couple of moments ago, the uh, government here said that this would be affecting a range of goods. Um, that would be excluded from the countermeasures that were put in place against the U.S.'s Section 301. Um, so that actually um, could be seen um, as a way for China to um, say that let's try to move things along um, because uh, the, the Trump administration had um, obviously wants to have greater purchases uh, by the Chinese of agricultural products. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal had reported that this was still a major sticking point between the negotiators, um, saying that the two sides were wrangling over, you know, really what was supposed to be something very easy to resolve. At least that's what a lot of people thought when these phase one uh, trade deal negotiations were first announced. Um, and uh, President Trump apparently wants the Chinese to um, publicly announce a purchase plan that uh, the amount would be in be, be between 40 to 50 billion dollars of, of U.S. agricultural uh, far, uh, uh, agricultural goods every single year. And 
um, you know, that, that, uh, that the Chinese, uh, would say out loud that they won't depend on market conditions or on the uh, trade obligations that they have. Um, and that, of course, would be very, very difficult for the Chinese to do. And, and one thing that I, I think was also interesting in that Xinhua report um, is that not only were they saying, so on the one hand, they're extending the olive branch, but also in that same report, they reiterated the point that Chinese firms import based on market needs. So there's still a bottom line there in these negotiations, but certainly at least um, in part an effort by the Chinese to say we are willing to buy more things from you, um, you know, when when they're looking at the, the folks in the Trump administration. Brilliant. Jeff. Eunice, thanks very much indeed for that. So we're, what are we, nine days and counting now to that uh, uh, December 15th deadline. Um, let's see how the mood music changes as we get a little bit closer. Uh, the World Bank has approved plans to loan China between $1 and $1.5 billion in aid annually over the next five years. The organization says the funds are aimed at strengthening market and fiscal reforms and encourage private sector development. U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin led Washington's protests over the move. He believes China is too wealthy for such aid and says he wants the World Bank to graduate Beijing from concessional loan programs. Karen. It is U.S. non-farm payroll day and the forecast is that we will see 187,000 jobs created in the month of November. That would be much higher than the previous month where we saw a fairly slim 128,000 jobs in October. Now the data is expected to receive a boost from the return of striking GM workers. The unemployment rate is set to remain steady at 3.6%, while average hourly earnings are expected to rise 0.3% on the month. So a slight tick up anticipated, but a very closely watched data series at this point as investors waited out to see what the central bank is likely to do. The Fed meeting on the ticker for next week. And so far, what we've seen is a mid-cycle adjustment. Any sign of weakness in the jobs market, I think, is quite crucial to the consumption story in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. I think the ADP number has people confused. I mean, that number came in way off the expectation here. So as we roll into this non-farm payroll seat uh, series, I think it is important that we just see that underlying resilience in the jobs market. And of course, the GM strike now will have washed out of the data. So we should have a clearer picture of what the employment trend looks like here. And as we roll into the end of the year, important too, I think that we continue to see those average hourly earnings numbers tick up modestly. You know how it goes. It's a bit Goldilocks with those figures. If it goes up too much, markets get worried about margin at the corporate level. If it goes uh, nowhere, then people get concerned that maybe Main Street is not benefiting from some of the actions of the central banks. Yeah, I totally agree, because it uh, goes to the heart of just how much strength you've got when we talk about people's pay packets and whether they're improving or not. I want to come back to the headline number two, 187,000 priced in, but some of the more bullish market assumptions based on these anomalies with GM workers returning, more than 200,000. So you could see a much bigger number than what we've got on the boards today. Where this also gets interesting is whether there's any weakness, whether we, we see a, a shock number to the downside because this series can sometimes be slightly volatile and one of the problems being cited has been the amount of available workers out there to hire that there simply is not the right skill set at this point so whether we're now bumping up against some of those problems on hiring the right workers at a time when demand has been challenged and if employers are making that leap to put someone on the books they want the right person who's going to move the needle on productivity 
No, I can't disagree. And this is a big time for seasonal employment as well as we run into the end of the year here. Um, all those uh, folk getting into the stores to help with the restocking uh, around the heavy uh, end of year sales period uh, as we run into the holidays. And of course, the postal service takes on additional workers and so on and so forth. Uh, just one, one thing to throw into this, and I think it'll be interesting to ask our guests about this. If this is a mid-cycle pause, as Jay Powell insists it is, then I think we need to begin to see confirmation that actually manufacturing employment numbers are beginning to tick up, even if it's just temporary workers back into the the factories. America is still a big manufacturing country. I think people forget that as they focus on China. It is important that this sector continues to be resilient. And I think to, con to, to confirm Jay Powell's position, we just need to continue to see inventory rundown and perhaps a slight pickup in those manufacturing and industrial production numbers to show that actually we do have an improving economy into early next year, or at least stabilization, for goodness sake. Well, there are links between that mid-cycle adjustment description and what you've witnessed on the job market in the States this year. I mean, the, the growth rate has been the slowest since 2010 uh, with the number of jobs created. So there has been some softness in that data series. Uh, trade? possibly necessary to get some improvement in the sector you cite in manufacturing. The areas where you have seen an impact in the ADP was natural resources, mining, construction, manufacturing. And those are exactly the areas that are wrapped up in a, a trade war. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.